everyone to a new episode of the Haptics Club podcast. I am Ashley, Strategic Partnerships at Titan Haptics, and I'm joined by my Haptics crew, Manu from Unity, Eric from Razor, and Brian from SenseGlove. The Haptics Club is a team of people that have a passion for haptics. Our goal is to raise awareness of the amazing tech and people happening in the haptics space, and of course, to foster interesting discussions on the subject. Speaking of that, right now we are joined by Ben Lang, who's been reporting in XR for over a decade as co-founder and executive editor of Road to VR. It's a leading independent VR news publication. Of course, everyone everyone knows what Road to VR is. Some of his favorites or some of his haptics coverage includes stories like the five most interesting VR haptic technologies I've seen in the last five years. He's been quoted in Forbes, Ars Technica, Cinemon Between Realities. Um, we all know Ben and we all want to grill him with amazing questions about all the haptics tech he's played with. There's so much to talk about, so we'll just divide the um, the hour by you know five minute intro. We'll do area of expertise, and of course we'll cover the future of haptics and challenges and opportunities of the haptics industry. We we shut off the recording at some point, and we we ask some of like the really juicy questions. So of course you're gonna miss that because you're not a part of the audience. But of course you can join us next time. Check out thehapticsclub.com. Sign up for a newsletter. Check out who's gonna be our next guest, and that way you can RSVP and you won't miss it. And last but not least, we have to thank our sponsors like the Haptics Industry Forum, they're a haptics association, which is enabled to create streamlined haptic standards and adoption and foster collaboration and increase market awareness. So thanks to them for you know filling our coffee cups, keeping our website running, um, and, and keeping this podcast going. Enough talk, enough intro. Let's let let's get into let's get into talking with Ben. Super excited. Eric, I hand it to you. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Ashley. Uh, great intro as usual. Ben. Uh, I think I met you again a few years ago on the floor of CES, I think 2017, something like that, at the beginning of haptics in VR, or at least what we call, what you see today as a consumer haptics uh, for VR, little bit that is happening right now. Uh, but let's uh, tell us something about yourself. Your passion for VR predates Oculus, if I remember correctly, right? Tell us a little bit your story regarding VR and how you came to found uh, Road to VR. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, Haptics is, you know, such a fascinating part of the VR space because we all want immersion, right? And what what better way than to feel like you're actually touching the worlds around you? Um, as far as my story goes, um, yeah. So I founded Road to VR in 2011, which was about a year before Oculus was founded. Which for people who don't, you know, know the history, haven't been this for a decade or more at this point. Um, Oculus, when was the company that sort of uh, reignited uh, the uh, passion for VR that was kind of sleeping. Uh, you know, VR had been around in the 80s and 90s, um, but it never really penetrated the mainstream um, and kind of kind of went into hibernation uh, from the mid 90s uh, beyond and didn't really exist in the c consumer uh, you know mind space at all until Oculus came along and uh, like I said, resparked this. Of course, there were lots of other companies, but really uh, when Facebook paid you know billions for this random. VR startup called uh, Oculus. Um, it was a big, big deal. Now it feels normal, you know, to associate, you know, Facebook or Meta with with VR. But back then, when they paid billions of dollars for this VR startup, like this is a social media company buying a VR startup, and the whole tech industry was like, "What is happening?" Um, uh, so yeah, that and that story's played out over the last ten years. Um, I had uh, been doing tech journalism prior to starting Road to VR, and uh, I've been working for other people, kind of just just gaining some experience as a, as a youngster, uh, and eventually cut my teeth enough that I felt like I knew what I was doing to re report on technology. And I said, to, kind of to myself, um, 
why don't I try kind of doing something on my own, like something that I'm really passionate about? Uh, you know, I wasn't covering anything like VR at the time. It was more like computers and tablets and smartphones. Um, and really, um, Road to VR was just like a side project. It was just, why don't I start my own thing and write about something that I'm interested in? Because uh, I had found that in spending all the time writing about the things I was writing about, I just learned like so much about them. And I had like an encyclopedic knowledge of the smartphones and the tablets of the era, you know, the specs and the companies and all that. And I just like had immersed myself in, in that industry and learned so much about it. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do something on my own, I should do something I'm interested in so that I learn a lot about something I'm interested in. So Road to VR, uh, well, VR as a topic for the thing that I started writing about was really just a it was just one of like 10 things I had jotted down in a list of potential things. And uh, for one reason or another, it won out in my brain as being the thing that I was most interested in, in learning about. Um, uh, primarily, I think, because this idea that, um, you know, we all know that dreams can be basically real to us, you know, in the moment they feel completely real. Uh, it really, that really, made it interesting to me to think that if our brains can kind of induce a, a perfect, you know, reality in our own heads, theoretically, it should be possible in the far, far, far future that, you know, if our brains can self-stimulate themselves to, to create those experiences in the far, far future, a la matrix, we might be able to uh, stimulate uh, artificially uh, into, you know, a kind of dream state to have like a perfect virtual reality. You know, you can feel, you can hear, um, you can, yeah. Has anyone ever smelled in a dream? I don't know if I've ever smelled in a dream. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but anyway, just long story short, uh, this seemed like a really interesting uh, idea to me. And I really wanted to know, like, if that might be possible, like, how far are we from that? Like, obviously, it's, you know, at least hundreds of years. Um, but I really wanted to know, like, where VR had gone, because when I started this, nothing was really happening. I want to know where it had gone and, and where it might go. Hence the, you know, road to VR was I wanted to kind of, try to try to get a rough trajectory of of where this stuff is going uh unbeknownst to me at the time you know any special insight uh it was about a year later that oculus was founded they were this little startup they raised a bunch of money and from there this whole you know vr community we used to call it uh started um and eventually at some point we stopped saying vr community and we started saying vr industry because it just kept growing and growing and now it's this big thing with tons of products on the market and a really exciting, awesome space to have been in, and I'm, you know, so glad that I've been following the whole journey. Uh, what I love what you're saying because you talk, you talk about journey and the and the name of your publication is Road to VR, and I like that because we will never arrive at the perfect, yeah. right? We will never be perfect, and maybe we will be better in many mm -hmm. many ways, mm -hmm. but we'll never be perfect. So it will always be a journey to arrive there. Yeah. The question is, yeah. does it even make sense to arrive there? And I, I, yeah, I definitely it, have. Yeah. Yeah, I have people who say, you know, we're we're here, VR is here, and I'm like, no, I'm, I was when I started this, I was thinking from here to the matrix, all right. So we're still so far away, and there's a lot more, there's a lot more to cover, you know. So we're still going to be on this road for, you know, long after I'm gone. <laughs> yeah, uh, fun stuff. By the way, you said that you when you dream, you don't smell. It's because uh, the area that uh, gets uh, uh, activated while dreaming don't touch the smell area, as well as when you dream, you cannot read. Really? Because it doesn't. Yeah, there is a bunch of things going on, but that's uh, uh, it's normal I, that you don't smell. <laughs> I love that because I've never heard that. It makes a lot of sense, and I just learned something brand new that I'd never heard before. So that's fascinating. I've, like I said, I never 
I can't recall ever having a time in a dream where I, you know, smelled smoke or, uh, or, or food. And wow, very, very interesting. Thank yeah, you. Drinking beers with neuroscientists has this problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because that's uh, one of the. Yeah, would we? Would you? Would you guys consider it haptics? Is smell haptics, or is it just Ooh. like a sensory? Please don't enter here. We have an OpenX artist discussion with people that they think that haptics and uh, and and smell should be the same. Uh, they shouldn't. I mean, haptics should be the touch mediated by technology. That should be mm -hmm. like the accepted the accepted uh, definition. As smell is mediated by chemicals, so there are Makes two different pathways. Yeah. Also, well, yeah, uh, haptics. <laughs> I, I Where leave you it guys to Ashley. You're going to get Eric going on that. Oh, amazing. I love that. Um, so jumping into area of expertise, um, I mentioned that article that you wrote about the um, like most intriguing haptic experiences. I'm wondering, um, from your perspective, what are the most accessible kind of like great haptic experiences that folks could try? Maybe there's like, if you'd only have to try one or can only try one, what would that experience be? Ooh, that is a really good question. Um, and there's a lot of different ways I think it could be answered. Unfortunately, off the top of my head, and this is a shame, um, I don't have one VR experience where it's like, they did the best haptics, like it's obvious, uh, which is really a bummer because if you really spend the time on it, uh, and when I say you, know, you, I mean, if the developers really spend the time on it and get it right, like it can add so much. And honestly, I'm kind of bummed that off the top of my head, I can't just point people to, one experience where like they really nailed it and the haptics were obviously beneficial. Um, however, uh, one, it's not complicated, but one where haptics is extremely useful and I think underappreciated is actually Beat Saber, which is by all means, probably the most popular VR game to date. Uh, great game. And uh, they, every time you hit a block, you're getting some haptic feedback. And I think that varies a little bit based on how well you hit it. You can get like, I think there's like, you can get a full kind of haptic effect and you get like a suited, like a sour haptic effect, like not as strong if you don't quite hit it. And then of course, if you miss it, you get nothing. Uh, that seems really obvious. Like, yeah, of course, just buzz the thing when you hit the thing, but it actually makes the game way more playable. Um, and I love haptics the most when they, contribute information to the user not not just immersion but like information that you you're not getting through another channel um so for instance with beat saber these blocks are flying by you so fast and you're in this rhythm that you're not consciously looking at each block to tell if you successfully cut it um maybe you can kind of see that when you look back at like you know the playback footage but when you're just in that flow state by the time you have committed to swinging and where you're swinging you're not looking to confirm the cut right but you feel it with the haptics. And when they're coming at you so fast, you don't have time to confirm every one, but you feel it. And when you miss one and you, essentially you're going to the beat, right? And the haptics are going to the beat essentially too. And you're in this, this mode of patterns. And when you miss one and you like don't have that part of the beat that you were feeling, you know it immediately. And you're like, that's not right. I have to get, like I've missed something important and I have to get back into that state. Because again, it's not like, okay, I'm gonna cut that block. I'm going to cut that block. It is this continuous like mental flow state and having that extra channel to tell you when you missed it rather than having to look and see that you missed it uh, actually adds a lot. And I say it's kind of underappreciated because the haptics are always there and people are just like, yeah, whatever, it's obvious. If you turn the haptics off and try to play Beat Saber, you will immediately realize you're missing something huge. Um, and so, yeah, uh, 
it's not a complicated implementation, but it is an excellent implementation. It's very important to uh, the gameplay. I love that. And also the for me, that one is an amazing example, because when you put the sabers together, you have like a lightsaber kind of vibe happening. Yeah. You can also touch the floor. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, those like little nuances make it very spectacular. Yeah, it's a great example. And how about either of you? I mean, I, do any VR experiences come to mind that really stand out as having awesome, op, awesome haptic implementation? Uh, my problem is that I see the defect instead of seeing the, the <laughs> <laughs> glass half empty. Yeah. But uh, what I want, I would like to share to say that we said then you encapsulated the problem of the whole optics market in once in basically one expression. It is when it's done well, you don't realize that it's there, mm-hmm. and uh, when it's not there, you realize that it's missing. Yeah. So it's actually it. it it's, you you find a value just after it disappeared. So it's mm-hmm. really difficult for communication and experiences to pick up uh, this value and share it and show it to the user and mm-hmm. making a differentiating you know purchase experience or differentiating immersive experience. So uh, that's that's the whole problem. It's really it's yeah. really like uh, uh, you need to experience it and you need to realize how good is it and you need to lose it to understand why it makes sense mm-hmm. and uh, yeah i think that one of the biggest problem from the developer side that's why they why they need to invest in in haptics but regarding the experiences i mean i tested the haptics global different iterations i there some of that some of their interactions are amazing yeah. some of them not all of them but some of them are wonderful i i lose the I lose the idea the time in VR and I'm you know touching the the grass as as uh, in in their basic demo that's just amazing mm-hmm. because uh, it's it, it's so compelling that it makes me forget the time in VR and I'm interacting with the hands but as a whole experience I tend to agree with you I I didn't find anything that is perfect let's say it's uh, it's it's encapsulating and makes a lot of sense as a whole Mm-hmm. Put it in this way. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, I think I think for each game that, that I like it um, haptics with, there's like some inconsistencies with it where it's very noticeable. So it's like you can feel, say, like you're tapping a putter, which is great. But then there's like if there's like phantom, like feels like phantom haptics or like haptics happening at like a strange time mm-hmm. when you least expect it, or it doesn't really, f- it's not consistent. That's yeah, that's what kind of makes it. Uh, makes it a bit nuanced and troublesome. So yeah, I think there's some games that do really certain parts really well, uh, but as a whole experience, yeah, it's 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 tough. I don't yeah. know. Chicken the egg. Uh, well, so this isn't an experience that anybody can go try because it's on like a $10,000 haptic glove. However, yeah. <laughs> one of the coolest uh, demos I've ever tried was on the, the Haptex glove, um, which has not just essentially, you know, you might call it tactile feedback, but it also has force feedback, which is the glove has the capability to restrict the movement of your fingers. Essentially, you can push push back uh, on your fingers. And they did this demo. They showed me a bunch of different stuff. But the one thing that absolutely blew me away, it sounds so stupid because it's so simple, but it was so compelling, was wearing these big gloves. And you know, you're in a VR headset, so you're not seeing the gloves. You just see your hands. Reaching out and gla- grabbing a like two-inch by two-inch cube and just grabbing it with my fingers on each, you know, on the faces and rotating it like this. And the gloves are able to stop your fingers. And, you know, like I said, I love haptics the most when they give you, you know, 
information that's useful. It's not just a thing and a thing. It's like when you do that, you know that you have successfully the game. You know that the game knows that you're grabbing the cube. So to you, it's just you grabbed it. Right. And so, you know, you've got it. And then the ab ability to manipulate it, it actually like in this case, it's not just creating an association between what you see and what you feel like kind of a conceptual connection. In this case, it is actually forcing you to mimic the physical uh, act of doing this, right? It's literally just this, because, you know, but with a lot of haptics, when you don't have force feedback, you know, you when you go to grab something, you're just grabbing through the air. And if you have to like mime, like grabbing a mug, like, like, like stop your hands uh, on your own from grasp, grasping that mug, it's, feels goofy and usually the game has a hard time detecting it right because like where is that exactly but with force feedback and in this case you know done very well it's there's none of that you just squeeze like you would to grab something and it stops your fingers naturally and just felt amazing like i i could swear that cube was a real object between my fingers as i was spinning it around um and i'll i you know i don't think i'll ever forget that and again it just seems so simple like why is it important to feel like you can spin a cube but it was such a perfect connection of of a virtual object essentially interacting with my physical body, which is awesome. Like, you know, it, it's not, you wouldn't even call it immersion. It's just kind of reality right there in front of you, which is wild. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you're, or you have a chance to check it out, you should definitely check out the haptics demo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Love like the spider walking across the hand, super enchanting. Mm -hmm. But for, for us regular humans who, um, who want, you know, just won't be able to, you know, PSVR 2 is a very accessible option, um, just came out. I'd love to kind of get some of your your thoughts on it. And then, you know, you've now like watched this stream of Twitter, like all these people are getting this headset and you're seeing a bunch of feedback or even from your friends. Like, like how's that been? What's going on with that? Yeah, so uh, I have to imagine everybody listening to this is probably a nerd already, but if you don't specifically, or if you're not specifically in the VR nerd space, um, a quick overview of why PSVR 2 is important for haptics is uh, on the controllers, you have your traditional kind of um, rumble, um, uh, probably, you know, linear actuator, the, the kind we all like now. Um, but in addition to that, on the triggers, you have uh, some force feedback. So exactly what I was talking about. The, you know, trigger can actually restrict the movement of your finger, which is kind of a new dimension uh, of haptics, which we haven't had in any um, existing, you know, consumer VR headset. Uh, so if anybody has the PS5, it's very similar to the the default PS5 controllers where, you know, you, the, the triggers can vary how hard it is to push and they can also, you know, push back and kind of do this dynamically. Um, in addition to that, the headset actually also has a motor on it, which makes it uh, kind of gives it a really low rumble, uh, which no other headset, you know, again, on the market, uh, especially in the consumer space has done so far. Uh, and it's this additional channel, this additional space where developers can choose to sort of give you this a haptic signal. Um, it's a, it's really it's really cool, uh, frankly, because they're just upping the game here, right? We've had the rumble in VR controllers for a long time. Some of them actually have pretty great, you know, little motors in there that can do a lot of stuff. Um, but giving these two new channels, both the triggers with force feedback and then kind of information on your head instead of just your hands. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it it's like it's like more bandwidth for communicating to the user information out of the game, and I think that is awesome. Um, I will say that as we've been talking about, the unfortunate thing is like I have yet to see 
an absolute killer app for these new haptics. Um, I'll say that the the head rumble is it's pretty straightforward. It kind of, as far as I know, you kind of just you know can rumble it, and that's about it. There's not a lot of variance to it. However, um, I did find that in sort of like when it's sparingly used and in big moments, like you know, uh, I was playing Horizon, uh, Call of the Mountain, and there's like a huge, you know, robotic machine that flies right close over your head, and you know, it's very threatening and. It, that rumble, you're not expecting it because they don't use it all the time, which I think is the way to do it. Uh, when that happens, you're not exactly like, oh, my head's rumbling. You're like, wow, that thing just, you know, it just adds that emphasis to the moment, which I think is great. Um, it, again, not complex, but just adds that little extra emphasis to what is happening, uh, which I thought was really cool. Um, the triggers, however, I'm still waiting for a game that is like really killing it because, um, you know, I'll say it again. I think the best when haptics are at their best, they're communicating information to you that you're not getting otherwise. Um, so far that I'll, all I've seen is like you pick up one gun and the trigger might feel a certain way. You pick up another gun, it might feel a little bit of a different way. But I haven't stopped and been like, oh, yeah, like I I'm I'm getting something from from this, something specific. Uh, it's so far kind of just been used like maybe a little bit arbitrarily, um, though I will say it feels like there's huge potential. So I'm really waiting for that moment, you know, that game that's like, yeah, this is how it should be used and other people should should pay attention and uh, and do something similar. Um, uh, one other thing, and it's, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of a nitpick at this point because these are nice new haptic channels. Um, the PSVR2 controller would have been like next level uh, if the, so the index trigger, like the gun trigger is the one that has the force feedback, but the inner grab trigger does not. So the inner grab trigger is actually just a button on the PSVR2 uh, controller uh, and it works fine, but you know, so much, maybe in some games, 100% and in other games, 50% of your interactions with the virtual world are, are grabbing stuff. And usually that's done with the grab button. So it's unfortunate that the inner grab button or trigger does not have the same force feedback cap capabilities as the main trigger. So it's kind of like developers are going to have to pick and choose, you know, if if we want to be able to give that haptic information, we're going to have to have them use it, use the trigger rather than the, uh, than the grab uh, button, if you will. Uh, so that will complicate, I think, things a little bit. If it was just on both, it would probably be, I think, easier for developers to use it more often because they could all they could use it every time. Like every interaction is going to be a trigger or a grab button for the most part in VR, except for you know select cases. Um, so had it been on both, it would have been like yes, like absolutely next gen controller. It's close, but because it's only on one, ugh, so close. <laughs> And how would you compare your experience between these uh, sense controllers, which are dual sense uh, for for VR fun, dual sense because it's two hand sense, whatever, uh, uh, com compared to the Oculus Quest Pro, which have a an LRA under the trigger? It has actually two actuators under the, yeah. the fingers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess I'd. We're just going to bump into this problem a lot. Uh, the haptics are there. I have not seen a killer use case for them. So the Quest Pro controllers are are awesome. Um, you know they have their own inside-out tracking. You don't need to keep them in space of the camera. That's so cool. And they do have upgraded haptics. They have a really nice weight to them. The haptics feel powerful. And they have it in the trigger. They have the they have it in the handle. Um, I did one early demo of uh, that Meta had put us through that was specifically haptics, and it was like 
touch a bunch of stuff. You could rub on different surfaces and all of it came through really, really nicely. Um, but they never put that demo out, which really bums me out. I don't even think it's out for developers. And it was like here, like it was just designed to show off the haptics. It was kind of like a little, little playground for your hands. And I really wish they would put that out because it, when you guys asked me earlier, what's the thing people can try? It's like, if you had a quest pro, I'd point you there because you can see the, the real incredible range of capabilities, um, that, that the, that the haptics are capable of, but I, it just isn't the haptics just seem in this perpetually weird place where they are an afterthought, uh, even after audio, which tends to be the afterthought after, you know, visuals and game design, which is a, a bummer to just see it's so rare for, uh, for it to really get the attention it deserves, which blows my mind. Cause it can be not just more immersive as we talked about, but it can be useful. It can be useful to help the user understand what they're doing in the game. Uh, we see this a lot in VR games where, you know, if you want to, if you need to reach over your controller to grab something, like a lot of control, a lot of games will do this over the shoulder uh, holster kind of thing where you reach over, pull the trigger. When you bring your hand forward, you've got your gun or whatever. Uh, for a long time, a lot of games will just d expect you to just know exactly where that zone is. But eventually, you know, smart developers paying attention are putting uh, haptic, you know, zone back there. So when you reach back, you're getting that buzz to know you're in the right spot. Again, communicating information to you that you can't see and can't get another way. Then when you grab, you are confident that you have it. Um, and actually, an interest that brings us kind of back to those uh, the PlayStation controllers with the with the trigger, right? Same deal. If you reach back there and you pull your trigger to grab whatever's back there, and it just pulls easily, like you're nothing's in your hand, you know you didn't grab it. If you reach back there and it, and you know you can use it to kind of uh, give you some force feedback, now you kind of have the sensation that that you have successfully grabbed something. So not only does that like make the user more like able to play the game better, adds immersion, like makes the developer's job easier, making the whole basically you know uh, in-game interface and holster system better. Like it's all there, and all it is is like just being cognizant about haptics are not just for immersion they are also for it is a it is a communication channel between the player and often a very intuitive one if you are smart and careful about how you do it which is uh it's as subtle as in game design when you need to light a door you know light up a door in the room so that it catches the player's eye but and but we all agree that's incredibly important right and very useful to the to the game design and communicating to the user uh thanks ben uh Maybe like let, you are in the stream of consciousness near. Let's let me continue. What about we talk about the uh, main platforms uh, haptics, right? What about peripherals? Uh, there are a bunch of companies that are developing haptics peripherals, and uh, with all the problems regarding integration, APIs, developer relationship, all these kind of things that maybe will be solved one day with OpenXR, but right now are a challenge for this company actually to grow a sustainable business. But mm -hmm. um, what can you tell us? What you probably tested most of them. Uh, what are some compelling use cases, compelling for factor that you would like to shut out and say, oh, this makes sense for this thing, this makes sense for that things. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, that is kind of the big challenge, right? The whole integration problem and and cost and all of that. Uh, if we're purely talking about the technology and not thinking at all about about actually getting it in there. Um, a very neat system that I saw years ago uh, was a pneumatic pneumatic bladder system. So imagine the Vive ones. Imagine like a, let's say a baseball bat handle, uh, but it is wrapped in this bladder. You know this rubber 
uh, thing that can fill with air that's segmented like in rings and sections. Uh, and then there is a pump that can pump up uh, that can pump up those sections in not just all at once, you know, like you're inflating a balloon, uh, but it each section independently. So as the as you're gripping this thing, you can actually feel the bladder kind of expand against your hand. It is sort of a sort of a form of force feedback. It is um, it's not rumble. It is more of a more of a pressure sensation. Um, so alone, that would be neat. Uh, might help you understand that when you're grabbing something versus not. If you know, you can imagine this on a VR controller as it was when I demoed it. Um, but the ability for them to do uh, inflate the different uh bladders in patterns you know like could give really interesting sensations so like i think a silly but but clear one is like imagine you're holding like a virtual fire hose right and they're inflating the bladders in in sequence to to make you feel like yeah there's water like flowing through this hose and coming out of it obviously that's not what you'd feel in real life but it is communicating to the user that this this thing is happening um so that i thought was extremely cool um there's definitely you know it sounds a little niche but i think i was pretty impressed actually with all the different effects that they had and how they could be used um they could even do it for things like if you're pulling back a slingshot uh communicating the amount of tension uh in the slingshot or let's say bow by inflating that bladder more and more and more again it's like you it's not exactly what it would feel like in real life, but you are making this association between what you see and what you feel, and it's giving you an intuitive sense for, are you, you know, how how stretched is this thing? So really, lots of cool opportunities for that. You know, if you if somehow that could be like con consumerized uh, and made very manufacturable and cost affordable and reliable, which is all the challenges of making technology happen. Um, it would be awesome to have those on the entire, you know, handle of every controller. That's such a wide surface and your hands are just absolutely packed with nerves, which is why we tend to, you know, your palms and fingers specifically, why we tend to do haptics on the hands. Uh, that's like such a high bandwidth channel, if you will. Uh, it would be great to be able to utilize just all of that extra surface for, you know, being able to push something against just lots of extra opportunities there to do cool stuff. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I'm super bullish on a pneumatic. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to understand <laughs> how we can bring it to market in any way or yeah. form. Uh, but because it's, I mean, from from haptics perspective, as a nice little property that is compliant, and being compliant, it's sort of a one of flip side problem of haptics, which is uh, four factors. And the other way around is that you can do low frequency and relatively high frequency. You can get pneumatic up to 150, 200 hertz. And basically, you can be substitute completely a Weber tactile system. Mm. You, can, uh, you could do low frequency and high frequency with the same system. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, technology is relatively mature on the, on the pump side. The problem from our perspective is the noise. Mm. It's noisy. And uh, that, that's the biggest challenge, I think, right now at this stage. It's not even energy consumption that's easy, but it's really about noise. So, But I'm, I'm bullish. Um, I think mm. something will happen in the next five years, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's tempting to for me to want that as well. Um, however, I feel like if we, could, if we could just direct the energy toward making the existing haptics, you know, really, really well utilized, I think we would love it. And maybe they'd be so good that we would want, you know, more people be encouraged and see the importance of bringing even better haptic technology into these devices.
in terms of, I want to jump into kind of like the the side of marketing and promotion, because I think mm. you've probably heard like many pitches and you've seen how people are, you know, promoting advertising their their products. Tell us a little bit of, about of like what you've seen over time, um, kind of since the beginning of how people have been talking about haptics and what you're yeah. seeing now. It's a good question. Uh, I would say early on in the VR space, uh, everybody was trying everything and it was really exciting. Um, there are lots and lots of haptic technologies that I've seen that are so cool and demo so well, just like this pneumatic one, but they really don't have a realistic path to adoption or they don't, well, yeah, they either, they don't have a realistic path to adoption either because the technology just won't work or because they require too much from the user. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, yeah, the, the noise issue and uh, miniaturization of, of pneumatics to try to get that into a consumer you know, size device is problematic. Um, but then on the other hand, you can have, you know, these Haptex gloves, even if they were $200, if you, even if they were $50, if you ask the users to put those on every single time that they want to do something, it's, it's a huge ask, right? Yeah. You've, you already have to, well, at least in VR land, you already have to put on the headset and pick up the controllers. You know, if you have to put, put these big gloves on and make sure they fit, and then you, you have to take them off if you want to use your smartphone stuff, it's just completely unrealistic. Um, and, you know, consumer isn't the only space, right? There are reasons to use haptics elsewhere for training and such. But even there, it is really important to have a high usability. Like, if, especially if you have something that has to go on your hands that prevents you from using your smartphone. Like I know that sounds almost petty, but these, you know, our smartphones are insanely valuable tools that all of us use every single day of our lives at this point uh, to cut people off from that because they're wearing something is problematic. And right. This goes for just putting on a VR headset, right? Even that is you're asking people to sort of uh, leave this important tool behind for the time being, which, can be nice if you want it, but if you if you need to still be in touch, that's a problem. So yeah, the I think the over time the industry has started to realize that if it's not like simple and cheap, the odds of success are just really low. The the smell stuff, right? Not exactly haptics, but one good example. I've seen 15 different companies saying we've got the best, you know, best smell system in terms of uh, how it smells and our ability to trigger it, but it's always this big, bulky, unrealistic thing that would need to be like refilled by the user and things like that. Um, and it's just like no one, no real, you know, no manufacturer of a headset is going to realistically want to put that in their product, which is a shame. It'd be so cool if all this stuff was just incredibly easy to use, but you really have to pick your battles in terms of cost and complexity when it comes to haptics. Um, Cause Consumers aren't going to accept a lot of friction and manufacturers are not going to accept a lot of complexity uh, or cost or size. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, you resumed in 10 minutes all the findings of our podcast in the last uh, two years, more or less. <laughs> yeah, but no, yeah, yes, it's, uh, I mean, we completely agree. And there was a yeah. episode with Chris Ulrich, which was a city of immersion, said, uh, it would be really, really hard to beat vibra vibrations because mm. they are cheap, they are reliable, yeah. they are small, and they are powerful. And you need to you need to check these boxes. If you don't check yeah. these boxes, you are not going to make it. Mm -hmm. And I am so bullish on the fact that DualSense allowed to bring another type of stimulation, which is yeah. force feedback, in a consumer product. And that is unheard of. I mean, it's the first time mm -hmm. it happens actually in haptics. Yeah. Uh, all the last time they, they failed. And this is, I think, uh, 
uh, two innovation, wideband haptics and force feedback, which was, I think, which, uh, which speaks about on, on the amount of care that Sony to put into this kind of uh, yeah. user interfaces and bring them to the market. So kudos to them on this one. And, I, and that's why I'm so bullish on PSVR 2. And when they announced head haptics, uh, I said, oh, oh, this will be fun. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think I, I think I agree that um, there are, you know, props to be given to Sony for a company to, uh, you know, one of the biggest console manufacturers in the world that's got a controller that, that's very widely loved to say, like, that's not enough and to figure out what they can give the consumers who aren't even asking for it. You know, I don't think there are a lot of a lot of their their average console gamers uh, or their average customers out there who were saying, like, you know, this would just be a much better product with with force feedback triggers, right? It wasn't exactly an obvious thing. Uh, if you if you weren't grabbing the controller, looking at it, feeling how it works and saying like, what what can we do to make this more immersive? Uh, and it's interesting that that extra immersion even applies just on the, the dual the dual sense controller uh, because it's, you know, it's not VR, but again, just kind of have feeling like your hands are a little more connected to the game ends up <laughs> mattering a lot. Again, it's that the surface is just really important for us as humans. Um, so yeah, that that is really awesome, um, and uh, I hope that I hope that it becomes the standard. I think they have I think they've proven that it's one of those things that after you play games with it that use it relatively well, you don't want to go back to not having it. It feels like you're missing something. That is sort of the essence of knowing that they've added something that is critical. So I hope that uh, you know your Xbox and your Nintendo will follow suit. Uh, as far as I know, Nintendo is kind of the furthest behind in terms of the, the haptics on their on their controllers, unfortunately. And but you know they they like simplicity more than more than anybody else and low cost. So fair. Um, but yeah, I hate to uh, I, I I hate to you know be down on haptics like that. It's it's I no, I'm sure you guys understand. It's because we it, we understand the potential of it and we want to see it utilized uh, as much as it can be, especially with the hardware that's already in these controllers. Right? We're talking a lot about new stuff and new you know what could the future be the stuff that's already in there can do so much um that i would just love to see that happen first and foremost um and eric to that end you know i think you know we've talked about uh authoring being a huge challenge it's not that people don't want to do it it's that it's difficult um and you know i'd love to hear a little bit more about your work in um in trying to address that uh yeah so uh, I will keep it brief and short and sweet uh, because this is your uh, your, your podcast. Now, the, the problem is uh, there's two problems there to our understanding. One, it's unclear what does it mean to do a good haptics in a sense of design guidelines. It means like being uh, deliberate on what you are going to do. And this is the uh, first problem. And this is part of this podcast to address this problem, but there are a lot of other also in haptic industry forum, we're going to address this problem on how we, what we, how do we need to think to create a fantastic haptic experience? Mm. Why God of War is fantastic, Hogwarts is not. Mm. This, I mean, it's it's not the implementation; it's how it's designed from yeah. a conceptual point of view. And then there are implementation problems. The implementation problems is that all the haptics devices right now have separate APIs. That means that the developer needs to reinvest every time to create that and that's really expensive for an unclear ROI, which means that a games producer simply doesn't uh, doesn't uh, allocate resources for that because mm -hmm. it's unclear because it's, it doesn't bring, can I make money 
on this one, there is a differentiating experience of the user that allows me to say, okay, I'll put two, three developers on this one. And the problem is that for every platform, they need to redevelop that, which yeah. means that they have an extra cost on top of that. So these are the things that two key problems. And the second problem we are solving it with Interaptics, which is the platform that we are building and the various API standardization. Mm. First problem of the being deliberate on how you design haptics, that is a lot of documentation of a lot of work regarding sharing best practices. Mm. And this is this podcast and the haptic industry forum wants to address that problem. Yeah. So for me, these are the two keys, uh, two key things. Well, so let me ask you, because um, I'm curious, and, uh, you know, so with, I think one of the biggest challenges is is authoring effects that are really unique and interesting and, and fit, you know, a piece of gameplay. Uh, is there widespread sharing of different haptic effects? You know, if somebody says, like, I just nailed how a machine gun should feel, here is that as a, as a file. Like, can, are people sharing those? Is there a library? No. No. Do you think there should be? Yeah. Uh, there should be examples that you can take inspiration from and guidelines that you should use for. Mm -hmm. But specifically, haptics is so tied with audio, specifically for these kind yeah. of interactions, where that if you change a little bit the machine gun, you change the repetition of the machine gun, you need to change your haptics effect. So that uh, it's better to create procedural models from audio patterns to create haptics than gotcha. to say, oh, this is a good machine gun because uh -huh. the machine gun makes sense only when there is the sound. Yeah. In this case, if you grab something that have nothing to do with sound, it's to do with visuals. Mm. Basically, haptics has these two dualities. In one, some, one case is audio-based, which is fast-paced explosions. Mm -hmm. In other case is visual-based. In the case of visual, I think we can create libraries Okay. Pretty much because it's a static system and you interact with that. In the case of audio, it will be pretty a bit more difficult, but you can share you can share best practices and automate the system. That's the thing that you. Yeah, yeah, and I would love to see that because, and hopefully that becomes more common if people are starting to use a common tool set, especially across across devices. Because uh, I do see really awesome, you know, I, you'll see games where they really made, you can tell they made an interesting effort to to create a particular haptic feeling, and it works really well. Um, sometimes though, it works really well because it is, I mean, usually actually because it is specifically tuned for that controller. And I know one of the big issues is. You might say, well, let's just have a haptic buzz on every Beat Saber hit, for instance. But if you are not actually customizing that for every controller, because every controller has, you know, just different different motors and different capabilities, uh, you it won't feel the same. It's not like, well, we'll just, you know, we have the Switch version of the game and the PC version, the Xbox version. We just put the sound, and the sound's going to play effectively the same. Uh, you know, yeah, there's better audio hardware or not, but it's uh, when it comes to haptics, it can be so different that your uh, your haptic effect you put in there almost isn't even doing its job if it's not on the right controller. So I've actually always been really curious about translating the sort of, like if you have a Quest 2 controller, for instance, and you create a haptic effect and you're happy with it, um, translating that to another controller uh, without specifically having to go in and tweak it is that like possible like for interaptics for instance are you are you doing any work uh to help the like to do that translation where you are sort of automatically adjusting what the what the developer says they want so that when it goes to another controller you've changed yeah. it whatever way it needs yes. to be changed 
So we have all the translation, mechanical and perceptual translation model. Yes, we have a good example. Uh, dual sense as a reference frequency at 60, start from 20 Hz till, let's say good is 100. Above uh -huh. that, it's useless. Yeah. Uh, uh, iPhone is 6300. We have a frequency remapping system because it's not a WAV file, it's parametric. The frequency remapping system on the system and we have a, a resonance frequency compensation which comes back in the way that the design intention is transported. There is a ERM, you have a translation model. So the biggest, the reason by which we work so slow, we are so slow. Every yeah. time we add a, a platform, we need to build the translation model for these kind of things and nail okay. it. When it's nailed, it, it's done and it's not, we're not going to touch it. But that was the longest part of our work was to build this uh, abstraction layer for representing yeah. the effect, which is not a wave and being able to translate it. That, 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 that is our core value proposition, by the way. Awesome. Um, uh, is, that, is that fundamentally new to do this sort of automatic translation? Uh, are there tools that have done this before? N never heard about that anything before, to my, yeah. to my experience. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have used it. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that to me sounds like uh, a just massive benefit. You don't have to, if you don't have to have and touch and feel every controller and say, is it, is it how I want it? Is it how I want it? Is it how I want it? I mean, you just, that's massive, you know, gain in productivity. Um, so from your end though, is it, uh, when, when you for interhaptics are trying to create those translations, sorry, this is my inner reporter coming out and my curiosity. Yeah, you're uh, taking over the interview with your questions. Uh, well, yeah. You I'm, cannot I'm so stop curious. to be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you are creating those translations, you get a new device and you say, we need to make sure that everything maps to this in a way that feels correct per its capabilities. Are you, is that like a manual process of you holding the controller and trying different models and tweaking it until it's just right? So we have a, a quantitative approach, which is based on a high bandwidth accelerometer and or sensors that allows us to map the capability of the system first. Uh, this is one. And the second point is that then you can't really get rid of the human if you would like that. And then it's like Camille said from Apple, it's the golden finger. So we have a bunch of people that are really trained about these things and really you feel you feel it. Example, when you're really trained, you can feel a mismatch from audio to haptics of one millisecond, a normal person, 30, 40. Mm -hmm. So you really get, develop a, a feeling for that. And basically then you refine it, uh, you refine it by hand. Mm -hmm. And let's say probably from Razer, future Razer product, you will feel my, my take on these things because yeah. I'm the one that, you know, yeah. chews things up. And in Apple, you feel Camille take. He's mm. the guy who refines the Apple feeling. And uh, it's pretty much like how, you know, like different sound systems mm. have different marking, uh, you know, uh, frequency patterns, but it's usually the founder who tuned it in that way because he was his feeling. It's pretty much the same. So it's, it's still a lot of analog work. Yeah. Uh, well, that's very fascinating to me. Oh, thanks for the question. It was the first time that everybody asked anybody asked this, and it's a, yeah. it's a wonderful question. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, let's awesome. go to the future. <laughs> let's go to the future. Yeah, I'm like super. Uh, can't wait to ask this, um, Ben, because we've been talking about like what kind of like challenges there have been in the industry, some of the cool stuff that you've seen that you kind of hope is going to come out. What do you hope that the future of haptics is going to look like in say like the next five to ten years? 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess we talked about it a little bit. I think the force mm-hmm. feedback triggers uh, is so uh, widespread uh, or its applicability is extremely widespread. So, you know, it can be on every game console. It can be in every VR controller. Uh, as far as we've seen, I mean, I don't know any of the any of the inner details, but it seems like Sony is very happy with the reliability and cost uh, and performance of whichever solutions they're using because they're throwing them in their controllers, right? So it's you know probably they're not they're not paying too much. They're probably not seeing too much breakage. You know, this is uh, this it feels like a mature technology at least as far as Sony is rolling it out. So I would love to see the force feedback triggers. Um, and like I said. Uh, having it both on the uh, on a VR controller, having it both on the index trigger and the grab trigger would be that next level thing. Because then, as I said, developers can always be using that channel, no matter if the if the user is shooting a gun with the index trigger, um, or activating something else, or grabbing an object or you know various things with their with the uh, with the grab trigger. That would be awesome. Um, as far as you know, further ten years down the road, um, maybe you know, maybe it doesn't have to be that far either. I think the head haptics are a win too. Um, assuming it, that's a big challenge, though, because if you think about it, anytime you're adding uh, that kind, you need to rumble something that big. You need to add a lot of mass, right? And for a VR headset, you really don't want to add more weight. So I think that's going to be a challenge to find that balance of is it being utilized enough to really warrant having this extra mass in there. Um, but I do think overall it is a win in terms of having this new channel, right? There, you, we've never been able to do this before uh, because if you think about traditional gaming, there's just not something on your head uh, to shake, right? But since every VR, <laughs> since every VR player um, already has a headset on their head, um, that's a great place to have some new level of haptics. And yes, uh, for those not on the on the video, <laughs> Eric's pointing to his headphones, which uh, <laughs> yes, could be done, but not every gamer wears one. Um, but yeah, that would be a great thing too. And in fact, uh, uh, I've, I've always really wanted to see haptics in mice. Um, I'm really surprised that that hasn't happened yet. And Eric is shaking his head. Never, will never ever happen. Ever. Let's hear it, let's hear it, why not? Because you're shaking the aim of the people. Uh-huh. And we do test have been run and, and and FPS player hates it. Uh, I mean, in theory that makes a lot your... of sense, but yeah. you don't think that you can get a uh, you don't think that you can have a subtle enough rumble that would not shake the aim even when the user is holding the mouse firmly. No, we have to go with reported haptics here somewhere else. I mean, if it is a immersive haptics that you are moving something, that is probably not going to happen if you are looking at. Uh, let's say taking out the click button and putting a haptics actuator, or we launched the, the adaptive scroll with haptics. That might be done because it's static interaction, but active haptics in the mouse, it's, you're taking away the reason by which people want to eight kilohertz pulling, right? Because yeah. basically you're making their aim really, really bad. Mm-hmm. But it should be reported somewhere else. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm I'm with Ben. I think I think there's there's some potential, um, and maybe it's just not with um, pro gaming. But I want to get back to the future question, Ben, because I think mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you off the hook on this one because you said you use the matrix as a benchmark. <laughs> so what what the heck does that look like? What does that future look like? That where yeah. Ben would be like, okay, we're good. Like this is this is where it's at. If like yeah. you know, check it out. Yeah, we're going way way far out there. Yeah, you know, in in the matrix, it's total total sensory. It's it is stimulating your brain, giving it all the artificial signals, essentially intercepting 
all of the signals that would be coming into it from your sensors, right? Your fingers, your eyes, your tongue, and all that. It is, you know, in the matrix, they're intercepting those signals and replacing them with artificial signals, which allows them to create a whole reality around you, what you see, what you feel, what you smell. Um, so yeah, if we're going all the way there, uh, you know, it would have to be essentially like total, total body control. And we know, and when I, when I say total body control, I mean total body sensation, if you will, anywhere, anything that's touched on your body, you could feel. And we know that that is possible uh, in theory, at least because again, in dreams, you know, you can touch and feel things in your dreams. So it should be, it should be possible to artificially uh, create those sensations, you know, many, many years down the road, once we have much better understanding of, of the brain and how that all works in the near term, the, the near future, not the insane far future. Um, you know, the closest thing we have to that is something like the haptic vests or the haptic suits, which I think are really cool. Um, and they can work in certain contexts. Uh, they obviously aren't going to be something people use in the home. However, there is this whole out of home VR space where people put on a headset and put on a vest and essentially run around like a warehouse size space. And that's, that's the place to do it because people already have to suit up, right? There's already the kind of onboarding experience of getting the headset on people and giving them whatever equipment they need. And so to put on a, a vest is not too much more in that situation, especially when it's like a made for this, you know, when the haptics are like specially made for this VR experience and this vest people are gonna be wearing, that can be really cool. I think that's, I hope that continues to exist um, and only gets better. Um, I have seen people suggest that in the, uh, I don't know, at some point in the future, there, you know, we could have lightweight, lightweight haptics uh, kind of sewn into clothing which I think is a really interesting idea. So, you know, right now we we have haptics in our clothes, usually in the form of our smartphone, right? We have it in our pocket and it buzzes, but if it's not in your pocket and you only have it on buzz, you might not hear it. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting uh, to, you know, if your shirt or whatever had a tiny little module in it that could stay sort of passively uh, charged from movement or something like that to be able to buzz to give you information either from your phone or something else, um, that might be really neat. The wristwatch, you know, the smartwatches are essentially the first step toward that. Uh, and then after it closed, maybe we just, you know, why not just embed it in our body, right? You know, now this is, it's all very fascinating because, you know, now we're talking about sort of the beginning of, uh, of like cyborgism, right? Integrating, like directly integrating uh, machine and, and human, which is incredibly interesting to me also on the AR front um, uh, because, you know, if you, Today, if you leave your house without your smartphone, you're like, ah, like I'm naked, like I don't have this thing. Well, once AR glasses are a big, important part of our lives, that sensation is going to be so much further off the charts. If you walk out of your house without your AR glasses, it would be like, I don't have my eyes on. You know what I mean? So uh, all of this stuff is really interesting. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll have nice haptics on the head too, on the AR glasses in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awesome, Ben. Thanks so much for that. We'll definitely have to bring you back because I think there's a whole plethora of, of stuff we could jam on on that front. And I think that there's probably some banter we could have um, just with our differing opinions, Absolutely. even on that last topic. Um, <laughs> I know Eric's ready to go. Eric's ready to go. Um, but this is kind of the closing part. We do want to leave you with, you know, if a minute to just maybe give like a piece of advice or like um, and also just where people can find you and, and learn more about what you're up to. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not a developer, so half of what I say is probably just completely ignorant of the realities of, you know, game development, which is what I see a lot because a big part of my job is uh, is essentially doing analysis and, and critique of VR games. Um, 
but I will say that in VR land, uh, audio and by extension haptics are sort of the lowest performance cost way to add immersion to your games. So we have a lot of VR games that come out that look quite nice, but the audio sort of doesn't doesn't hold its end of the job up. I, I'm like really blown away when I see trailers come out. And again, these are, in, these are indie studios, small projects. I'm I'm not ignorant to, ignorant to the fact of why this is, you know, why these this is the case, but it sort of, it almost upsets me knowing that with a little bit of, just a little bit more uh, resource allocation onto the audio side that some of these games would just feel so much better, right? That's like audio and haptics go quite hand in hand because it is about the feel. Uh, and so if you are a VR developer who is, uh, struggling to hit your performance targets but you feel like your game doesn't doesn't isn't quite hitting that immersive feel that you want audio and haptics essentially cost nothing performance wise uh in terms of their quality so if you can spend a little more time maybe maybe bring on an expert or or somebody who really knows their way around this stuff um that is a it can go really, really far, maybe farther than you think uh, in terms of making your game look and feel or not look well, kind of look, honestly. When you when you pair a sound effect with a visual effect and a haptic effect, it it, it is a, it all a feel, right? And it can feel so much better when it's not just a good visual, but also the rest of it. Um, so yeah, that that might be the advice. Think about, think about your audio and how a little bit of polish there can go a long way and cost you almost nothing in terms of your VR performance budget. Awesome. Great advice. And definitely check out Road to VR. Um, tons of epic content. You guys capture all the latest tech that's coming out. It's interesting insights on the industry. Um, so thanks so much, Ben, for joining us. Um, this has been an awesome conversation on gaming, XR, future of haptics. Um, also, special thanks to our sponsor, Haptics Industry Forum, haptics.if.org, uh, haptics association that's created to basically streamline haptic standards and adoption. And for anyone listening, check out thehapticsclub.com. Follow us on LinkedIn. Catch us on Twitter. Um, we have every episode live on YouTube. And we have, we're on every podcast platform. So whether you're Apple or Spotify, you can find us there. So see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.